The Guardian. Hi, Ian here. Before we start today's episode, we have a word from Jonathan Friedland on a new podcast from The Guardian's politics team. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and if you didn't know, I'm an American politics obsessive. Every Friday for the next three months, I'll chat with some of The Guardian's best reporters and columnists in the US about a single question prompted by the 2020 campaign as they navigate what is already one of the most bitter, divisive and important presidential contests in American history. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. This election will decide whether we will defend the American way of life or whether we will allow a radical movement to completely dismantle and destroy it. You can find us in our usual Politics Weekly feed on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The rationale for human challenge trials is that they can greatly accelerate the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Human challenge trials can provide information much faster than conventional efficacy trials, which take months longer. In such trials, volunteers still receive the vaccine candidate or control. Instead of resuming life as usual and waiting to catch a virus, volunteers are deliberately exposed to the pathogen under controlled conditions. Beyond being faster than conventional trials, a challenge test is likelier to conclude with interpretable results. So goes an open letter published in July by the advocacy group One Day Sooner, signed by 15 Nobel laureates and countless researchers and academics. Around the world, tens of thousands have also put themselves forward to take part in human challenge trials. So, if there are enough volunteers and scientists willing to do this kind of research, why haven't any human challenge trials started yet? Alongside technical hurdles, there are also important ethical questions to address, including the lack of rescue treatments should participants get sick, how useful challenge trials will be if they can only be run on young, healthy volunteers, and are the risks really worth the potential benefits? It's really remarkable and I think also admirable that people are willing to take on risks for the benefit of others in society like this. To me, the question, though, is it's not enough to say people are willing to put their lives on the line. There has to be a corresponding commitment on the part of researchers to give them something to do that's worth the sacrifices they're willing to make. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. As a reminder, I was joined by Seema Shah, a bioethicist at Lurie Children's Hospital and Northwestern University, Myron Levine, the Associate Dean for Global Health and Vaccinology and Infectious Diseases at the Maryland School of Medicine, and Alberto Jubilini, a philosopher at the University of Oxford. Alberto, how does the fact that we don't have a rescue treatment yet change the debate around these challenge studies, do you think? I don't think that's... Uh necessarily a decisive issue. What matters is not so much whether or not we have a rescue treatment. What matters is the risk that exists. And the risks depend in part on the existence of a rescue treatment, but the risk is also independent of that in an important sense. For example, if you talk about you know, the seasonal flu, uh, there is no rescue treatment, but you know, the risk is reasonably small. In the case of COVID-19, so the key word here is always the same, is the big uncertainty. Maybe we don't know enough about the long-term consequences of this uh, 
of this virus. So it's not that the, the existence of the treatment itself is about being able to have a rough idea of the actual risks. The treatment itself uh, might not be necessary as long as we have a better idea of the risks involved. I'm not sure there's a necessity for certain challenges. Um, we don't have a specific therapy for influenza. We do influenza challenges. We have some drugs that will shorten the uh, clinical illness by a day or a day and a half. The common cold center that existed in, in Salisbury in the 1960s and 1970s that carried out studies of viral agents, including seasonal uh, coronaviruses that cause the common cold, but for infections that can be severe and can even be fatal, uh, I think <laughs> it's a world of, of difference if there is a, an intervention. Despite the lack of a rescue treatment, there's clearly thousands of people who volunteered to take part in challenge trials. They seem to feel that it's a way they can help. Is there an argument that if participants want to do this, then red tape shouldn't stand in their way? Uh, you know, can a researcher say no if a volunteer is really keen to do it? One of the most interesting things about this current pandemic is the creation of this organization one day sooner and the 35,000 or more people who've signed up to say they would participate in a challenge study, even though there isn't one for them to join at the moment. It's really remarkable and I think also admirable that people are willing to take on risks for the benefit of others in society like this. To me, the question though is it's not enough to say people are willing to put their lives on the line. There has to be a corresponding commitment on the part of researchers to give them something to do that's worth the sacrifices they're willing to make. First, will they actually move the needle and make a difference in getting us to a vaccine faster? And right now, it's not clear that they would. That could change. And the second issue is about the risks and whether there might be these serious adverse events. The world will be watching and may actually set back confidence in the process of vaccine development and the development of future vaccines. So if there are those negative effects from challenge studies that affect vaccines in general or other research studies down the line, um, these are things that matter for all of us and make it really important that we get this right. Alberto, what's your thoughts on this? I think uh, the reasonable thing to do is to let people decide what kind of level of risk to take on themselves, but only to the extent that, first of all, the risks are acceptable. And second, the likely benefit of this kind of trials is large enough. So, of course, these trials are ethically justifiable only to the extent the benefit, uh, the expected benefits outweigh you know, the risk of harm. So, if you think uh, outside the research context, we often allow people to decide what level of risk to take on themselves uh, by taking on, for example, risky or hazardous occupations. And in those cases, we need always to make sure that the risk is not unreasonable. We always need to make sure that people are properly compensated both for the risk and for the harm should they occur. One could arguably say, based on this analogy, that people uh, should be left free to decide what level of risk to take on themselves, as long as there are some boundaries to the absolute risk, the, the probability of the benefits outweigh the 
risks involved. Mike, you can see how there might be some potential volunteers who would think, look, I might get COVID anyway, perhaps even they might think they're probably going to get it, and they may prefer to do it in a controlled environment with doctors standing over them, potentially also with vaccine protection, while they're contributing to medical science. So what's your thoughts on this? I think that uh, many of these uh, folks who've signed up for One Day Sooner have been uh, perhaps unable to to spread their wings, a strong interruption of their life. This is a way they could think of getting back. I, I think that's true. What one must do is make sure that they're not uh, manipulated uh, inadvertently. So early on when this organization began. It was right after one of these early papers. But most of the premises were just not correct. And it was written by people who had never done a challenge, who never took into consideration how long it would take to come up with a safe uh, challenge inoculum that would have to be made under BSL-3 conditions. And there are really only a few places in the world that can make a large batch of this virus uh, and manufacture it under, under BSL-3. And it would be done in a high-level isolation unit initially to set up the model with careful dose response. All of that takes time. And that was not conveyed early on. Some of the issues you've raised there, Mike, and some of the issues that have come up while we've been talking uh, really go to this question of informed consent and making sure volunteers really understand the risks. Alberto, what are some of the ethical questions around informed consent, especially when you have a new disease like COVID-19? The problematic issue here is about the informed bit of informed consent, because there are two things. First of all, as we said before, there is a lot of uncertainty about the actual consequences of the virus. But the other thing is that Informed consent requires some uh, risk, individual risk assessment. And uh, we know that individual risk assessment is often uh, biased or polluted by individual circumstances, feelings, uh, things like socioeconomic backgrounds, for example, tend to affect people's risk assessment. But people do make their own risk assessment based on personal consideration, and that might affect uh, informed consent. But ideally, in circumstances where people can make autonomous decisions and the information is clear and there is enough information, there is a presumption that as long as people give informed consent and it's really informed and it's really consent, then there is a presumption that people should be allowed to take on themselves risks. And Seema, do you agree with that? As one of my former mentors, Christine Grady, used to say, informed consent is widely subscribed to but imperfectly realized. It's one of those concepts that we've been trying to improve. So ethicists have been doing research on informed consent for decades, and most of the interventions that have been designed really don't make much of a difference in improving understanding. There's also this gap between being able to say you understand risks and being able to appreciate that those risks might happen to you. So there are some studies that show, you know, when you ask people what the chances are, if they'll get a placebo, they're able to say that accurately that they have a 50% chance of getting a placebo. But then when you ask them, what are the chances that they would get 
the treatment, what, what do they think the likelihood actually is that they would get the treatment? People, about 68% of people will say, I think I'm probably going to get the treatment. The other issue with informed consent is, of course, in challenge studies, people do use a number of extra protections like testing people on their understanding and make sh- making sure that they understand all of the necessary information before they're admitted into the trial and giving people time to reflect upon their decisions. Some people even admit them to an isolation unit, let them spend a night in the unit, and then ask them again after they've experienced it whether this is really something they want to do. So there are a lot of different protections you could build into an informed consent process, but it's never enough on its own. Um, There definitely needs to be somebody in advance making sure that the study really has the ability to deliver on its promises um, before people are invited to join that study. Mike, on a practical level, how do you ensure your volunteers are, are truly informed? Do, do they get you know, a test or something to make sure they've taken the information in properly? Or how do you um, try and ensure that they're as informed as, as they can be? I believe that I was the one to have first introduced uh, tests to document the knowledge of volunteers. And that was back in the mid-1970s. Our source of support was NIH. They were the ones that asked us, in fact, to set up uh, the, the cholera challenges in community volunteers. And they asked us to make a movie of the f- informed consent procedure. And during the challenge study, I would ask questions of volunteers And I was not satisfied with the answers I was getting. When I confronted volunteers with that fact, they said, oh, doc, we trust you, which showed we had established the bond, which is very important, but did not uh, please me. And that's when I set up a multiple choice uh, or true-false set of questions. Another thing we did was we had a psychologist who interviewed volunteers uh, to look at their psychosocial, psychiatric suitability. They were given a psychological test before and after participation. And we found that with certain challenges, the volunteers uh, showed in particular cholera, there was overt evidence of an increase in personal self-worth and accomplishment. And I, I found that uh, I found that interesting. May I pose a question to the ethicists? And if I may, with an anecdote, I'll give a context. The only socialization my wife and I have done is having dinner with a couple, uh, four meters apart, <laughs> and we talk. And one of the individuals uh, did challenge studies in the 1970s. This is now an octogenarian. He said, you know, maybe there should be a challenge in our age. And he said, I would volunteer. I exclaimed (laughs) my surprise. And he was serious. Um, For Ephesus, if there was a group where a challenge study would really provide information of great public health impact. It would be in uh, perhaps middle-aged individuals with risk factors 
or in older individuals where the risks would be very, very, very real, even of, of, of death. But the value of the information would be so, so much greater in terms of extrapolation. Have ethicists discussed that uh, amongst themselves? I would flinch at the thought of enrolling research participants and deliberately infecting them with a high probability of death. Maybe the best analogy is the Walter Reed yellow fever experiments, which were conducted around the turn of the century where participants were enrolled in a study to try and determine whether mosquitoes or bodily fluids were the way that yellow fever was transmitted. And um, there was a fairly high risk of death in that, in that study. And they even enrolled some of the investigators as research participants. So it's long been the study that has been lauded, but it's also raised these questions about what are the protections you put in place around very high-risk research? Should it be that research researchers themselves should be enrolled in those studies? But to me, the, the problem is that what happens in a research study doesn't stay confined to those participants. It gets transmitted out into the world. And as people see various consequences of research studies where people are harmed, it's possible that they interpret that information in ways or even weaponize that information in the current environment to raise questions about things like research in general or vaccines. So I think, though in theory, I can imagine a situation where maybe the social need is so high and the people who are volunteering really understand what they're getting into. I can't imagine it in practice because of the world we live in and because of the ways in which we haven't elevated research participation to a status that would permit that kind of sacrifice. Alberto, time to hear from you on this one from Mike. If I had to answer the question directly, say if I'm eight-year-old volunteers for a challenge study on uh, COVID-19, if the question is, would you allow that? My short answer is uh, yes, but there needs to be a longer answer, which is yes, provided that certain conditions are met. And the conditions are, first of all, that the person fully understands the risks and the decision is fully autonomous. And, uh, and second, provided there are adequate compensation schemes in place and adequate payment for risk in the same way as we do for hazardous applications. In the real world, the conditions, so we, we, you will not have many volunteers that meet these requirements probably, because once people understand the risk or the uncertainty around COVID-19, especially for older age people, very few people would be likely to volunteer for this kind of thing. But if there are people who meet these conditions, yes, but they need to be compensated and risk need to be uh, acknowledged. Of course, what Mike's question is getting at is that presumably a lot of people that would be eligible for a challenge trial would be those who are least at risk of having serious disease if, if, the, if the vaccine doesn't work. Does that make these challenge trials actually less valuable? Because what you'll find out about is how good that vaccine is in people who are very low at risk anyway. I don't know how much it tells you about the people that you really want to know the answer for, which is the, you know, the 78-year-olds with, with comorbidities and what have you. Challenge studies or well, research in general will still be valuable because one of the great things about vaccines is that you can exploit indirect protection. So 
in order to protect the vulnerable groups, you don't need to vaccinate the vulnerable groups. It might be enough to vaccinate other groups of people in order to create immunity at the collective level that will confer indirect protection to uh, vulnerable people. So if the future COVID-19 vaccine will be more effective and uh, safer on, say, young people, so there might be a case for prioritizing young people in accessing the vaccine over the elderly, because in that way, you might create protection indirectly for the elderly. To wrap up, everyone, I wondered if I might just ask you, with this being COVID-19, with us being in the middle of a pandemic, has that had any bearing on your feelings about challenge studies and the, the wisdom or not of doing them? I think the current pandemic has brought about very complicated divisions around the world and a lot of ways in which science has become politicized or questioned by many people, a process that was already happening before but has been accelerated. So in some ways, the the current pandemic makes me think it's really important to communicate clearly about challenge studies. They're highly counterintuitive to understand that scientists would deliberately expose people to an experimental infection. That's a hard thing to understand, and it's an easy thing to mislead the public about, especially if it's not done as carefully as possible. So um, the current pandemic gives me more reason to want to get it right in when challenge studies are used. Alberto. Uh, no, it hasn't changed my view in the sense that I thought I was in favor of challenge studies. If anything, it has changed my view on the issue about payments for risks, given the uncertainty around COVID-19. I think there is a stronger case to think more carefully, at least, about compensating participants. And Mike, last word. I think the way challenge studies were being pushed and publicized early on was incorrect I think there may be an even more important role after the first licensed vaccines come from large-scale field trials that show efficacy and safety. What about the up-and-coming vaccines? But up to now, I think there has not been a balance of pros versus cons indicating that this tool should be implemented. Uh, The important tool was to get to where we are now with multiple large-scale randomized controlled field trials across the world with multiple vaccines and then getting those vaccines into uh, people. We've done that without challenge studies. There may be a role for challenge studies coming up. Uh, We shall see. Mike, Seema, Alberto, huge thanks for all of your time and for the benefit of your wisdom on this. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. This was a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you all. Have a good day. Huge thanks again to Seema, Alberto and Myron. Do let us know your thoughts by emailing scienceweekly at theguardian.com. If you have a question about the science behind the pandemic, you can fill in the form found at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. That's all one word. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then. The Guardian. 